This is I'm a PK. So what? Podcast brought to you by the PK Nation. Listen to real life stories and get tips to thrive as a PK. So yes, your host, the first lady, Ruth Zubairu. I'm a PK. So what? I'm a PK. So what? I'm a PK. I'm a PK. Hello everyone, welcome back to Features Kids. So what? Today I am so delighted to have my very own daddy. His Grace Archbishop Benjamin Kwashi. I mean, he has, he holds a very dear place to us personally, but I don't want to, you know, pull everybody with all I know. I mean, my mom and he go way back. As the story goes, my dad married my mom from their house, you know, but he is that special to us. But on, for everybody to, to know how special he is, he is the, he's a Nigerian Anglican archbishop, and he has been very, very visible in, and vocal. He has been very visible and vocal in his, in to, his religious call, and in leading in his national calling as, I wouldn't say an activist, but being a strong voice in advocating for education for the less privileged or for those who are not in the center of um, luxury and all that. And then for church, the voice of God in society. He has also led several rural and urban parishes in his journey as an archbishop. He is the, a leading name in the Anglican realignment, GAFCON too, which he will tell us more about in a few seconds. He also suffered um, attacks from the violence in the northern region of Nigeria where he and his wife had to literally be held for their life. And so in the period that we have here today, he will be sharing with us a bit of who he is as a person and how this translates into the work that he does as a clergyman. And then for the next generation of clergy children and the larger community. Thank you so much, Daddy. Thank you, Ruth. That was an elaborate, uh, what would I say, to get people to know me, but thank you. You're welcome. I mean, I I definitely didn't do justice to this. Could you tell us a bit about what GAFCON is and um, the role you currently play right now in GAFCON? I think the simplest thing is to say that I am the general secretary of GAFCON. Okay. GAFCON means the Global Anglican Future Conference Movement. And it began in 2008 when it became obvious that some parts of the Anglican church in the communion worldwide 
have chosen to depart from the teachings of the Holy Scriptures on the issues of family life and sexuality in particular. Hmm. And some of the leaders of the same Anglican communion felt that this was not right because those who want to turn away from scriptures are embracing a modern secular cultural practices and not only embracing it but imposing it upon the church and those who want to uphold the teachings of the scriptures and those who are throwing away teachings of the scriptures it became obvious that there needs to be uh, a rethink for the anglican community okay. but by the conference of 2018 there was hope that the larger part of the communion and the other part of the communion should be able to come together to discuss theology of the Anglican communion. But 10 years down the road, after the first GAFCON conference and the second GAFCON conference, the rest of those who do not want to uphold the teaching of the scriptures continued in their trajectory and improving on their falling away from scriptures. For example, homosexuals were becoming bishops, consecrated. In fact, one of the homosexual bishops divorced his wife and became homosexual and was still accepted as bishop. And these practices, obviously, in African culture even, yeah, is not elevated to that level. So we were trying to get people to say that this is not the way forward. But as it continued, so obviously GAFCON now continued to work in its strength of holding up the scriptures. And the Lord fell on me last year to be the general secretary. So my role essentially is to keep the mission and evangelism of the church on fire to insist on holding and upholding the scripture and to make sure that those old leadership should uphold proclaiming Christ faithfully to all nations. Hmm. Proclaiming Christ faithfully to all nations. I mean, that's, that's the mandate of, of, of Christianity in, in a nutshell. And it brings us to the crux of what we would like you to share, you know, the idea of being a 21st century Christian, because a lot of people are led to believe that um, certain things don't hold water or certain things are for in those days. And so being a 21st century Christian um, means that I would carry on some other things that were not done before. Now, so, but what does it mean to be a 21st century Christian? 
how, what, what, what are the things that are non-negotiables, if, if we would call them that? And then how can we see it and then how can we imbibe that in our day-to-day -day life? The 21st century Christian is no different from the first century Christian after the resurrection of Christ. Hmm. That will not change until Jesus comes. By that time, um, eternity begins. Because the non-negotiables include the fact of that Jesus actually did die for our sins and was raised and he released the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And the apostles actually had that experience and began to preach Christ crucified. That is non-negotiable. Secondly, those who believed in the resurrection of Christ found themselves in a new way of life that in their faith believe their sins are forgiven. Okay. And when Jesus comes into their life, they become a new creature. They become born again. They become regenerated. They become transformed. And all of that put together creates inside of them a sense of Jesus in them to begin to transform where they are and transform the community where they are and transform and they just become living transformers wherever they go. Uh, this is not to say that they will not wear jeans, they will not wear earrings, but you will know them mm -hmm. because they will not tolerate sin. Mm -hmm. They will not be spectators where evil is. They will militate against it, they will fight it. They will not compromise holiness of life and living. But most importantly, they take their instructions for living. As in the first century Christians, so in the 21st, take instructions for living from the Bible. So it doesn't matter whether it is courtship and marriage. The Bible is the guide. It doesn't matter whether it is family life and raising children, the Bible is the guide. It doesn't matter whether it is going to the university, teaching in the university, working in government, working anywhere, the Bible is the guide. Now, taking a life outside of the Bible will immediately draw a line which the first century Christians would not even tolerate. Mark you, the first century Christians were Christians in hiding because they were roasted 300 years. The Christian life in the first century was not a luxury life. And so to be a Christian is not a luxurious life. It is a life of militating daily against Satan and all his works. It's a life of baptism in Christ, dying and being raised with Christ. It may cost your life. It may cost your job. It may cost many things. But that is what it takes to be a Christian in the 21st century. Let me even tell you, in the 21st century, I think that the issues are even bigger because in the Western culture, 
And please remember that every culture is man-made. It's, it's, it's a creation of human. But when culture takes on the place to replace the gospel, that creates a huge controversy. And people are elevating culture in the church, in the 21st century, and claiming to be Christians. Oh no, like any other culture, even the culture of the times in the first century, there is the good, there is the evil in our local cultures. There is the beauty and the act in our local cultures, in any culture. But we cannot take culture 100% without putting it under the microscope of the gospel. Because when culture supersedes the gospel, it is no longer Christianity. Hmm. Deep points there. Very deep points. When culture supersedes the gospel, it is no longer the gospel. Now, so this lockdown period, everyone is, this is happening in March slash April 2020. There is the coronavirus and there is almost like a partial lockdown globally. People are being restricted, no flights in or out, house of places of worship are shut down. So what has this lockdown period taught us? Because we're all used to going to church. We're all used to a certain way of worship, especially for those of us who are not in places where they're running for their lives, you know, but we're used to public um, gatherings. Sometimes people, they're only interaction with their bible or with god is in the church so but what has this lockdown period what is it trying to teach us with regards to how we worship well number one the the lockdown is not new in history but the biggest part of it is this that christianity uh, following Jesus, the risen Jesus, and being a Christian thrives in difficult times such as this. In, in the times, in the times of the most difficulties in the history of humanity, genuine true Christians have emerged. If you read the book of Hebrews, you will see it that in the persecutions by the Roman Empire, that was the time when hospitality was at its best. Mm. People welcomed strangers they never knew before, and by welcoming them into their homes, they became Christians. They turned their lives over to Jesus. People like Epaphras in Colossae, a businessman, his home became the church, and he moved on to Heriopolis and to Laodicea, and all his trading spots and shops became the church. And they were all in houses. So the church in the first 300 years of its history thrived most under severe circumstances. It was in the time of diseases. It was in the time when the weather was the most harshest. On top of it is persecution. Yet you saw the most generous Christians. And people like Titus, young Titus, would risk his life to go to Macedonia and go to Corinth and follow Paul and take these things by foot and on donkeys down to Judea 
to help the church in Judea that was suffering, whether it was locusts or famine, both put together and there was none. In more recent times in England, how did Florence Nightingale got to be known? It was in the time of plagues like this that mm -hmm. she offered a life to help those who were suffering these terrible diseases. And Queen Victoria elevated her. And nursing emerged as a profession. Mm. In a lot, it, it is for, for the sake of Christ, genuine Christians, this is a time we are neighbors will get to know who you really are. When you get up and go to church, never greeted your neighbor. You've never told him where you went to church. He also gets up and goes to wherever he likes. Now, sadly, we have to leave. <laughs> we have to talk. And we've got to talk our faith. And if in that compound where you are, you've only been quarreling and that's all they know you, in spite of your going to church, now they want to see a change. This is how the Christian goes, that in difficult times, your light must shine. There are old people who need help. There's no light, no water, there's no food. And you have, what do you do? You share. It may even be your last meal. But when you share, this is a time of generosity. This is a time of kindness. Now, when you've done that, and later in the evening, you say, folks, can we just pray? Because the seriousness of the corona situation in Africa frightens me. We don't have the kind of hospitals that America, Germany, England, Spain, and Italy have. We don't even have the kind of doctors, the numbers that they have. We don't even have the luxury of, I mean, the, our economy has gone down. So when you think of this thing falling, for example, in Muchi or in Tudungwada in Jos, or in um, Kabbalah in Kaduna, or in some of those slums where it is, we're talking about half a million people in the whole of that place. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about distancing, it doesn't even exist because some mm -hmm. of these people live in a room, some of them 10 in two rooms or 20, and they all get out, use the same toilet and all of that. If this plague falls upon us, can you imagine the funerals that will mm -hmm. have to be done? So this is a Christians to show by our faith in generosity, to show uh, by our faith in hospitality, to show by our faith in kindness, to show by our faith in politeness. Because the things now, ten people's tempers are very high. But the ten <laughs> it will be so nice, and people will be wondering what kind of what stupid man is in the midst of all of this. Mm. But you have some in walking inside of you beyond what anybody can explain and only you know and the power that lives in you gives you the grace to do things in difficult times that ordinarily normal times you cannot do that's how to worship Worship is not singing and dancing and playing guitar and all of that no worship living the faith that you live if you are unable to live faith when you go and sing that's good it does you some good and it has its place but boy living it is the worship will worship God in spirit and in truth. Oh. So, okay, on, on, the, on the flip side now, is it, some people will now say, when, after, when, after, when all this is over, I don't need to go to church. Do I, as well, stay in my house and pray and read my Bible? So what, is it, should we now applaud that um, train of thought or that philosophy that there's no more need to 
call for corporate gatherings. Everybody should just stay and then connect with God and live the life of worship. That has two dangerous sides to it. The first one is, let's pray that you live through this thing and you survive. That's hmm. the first one. True. The second one is, there is no way in which you know Jesus and you be a follower of Jesus alone. Even while Jesus was alive, he sent them two by two. Hmm. The essential part of being a Christian on earth is relationship with God and relationship with others. So you'll find in the New Testament throughout, there is always the each other, there is the together, there is the one another, and that snowballs into a fellowship because there's strength in fellowship. There's strength in coming together to pray. There's strength in shoulder to shoulder supporting one another. If you choose to stay alone, the second danger is what happens to you alone stays with you alone. Mm. Mm. True, true. Thank you so much, sir. Um, let's move to something that's more personal. Being a, a veteran daddy, granddaddy right now. <laughs> what has been your guide? You have six children. What has been your guiding principle in raising your children, especially as a pastor? Of course, you said having your children when you were already a pastor. And so how did you raise them? One of your sons is an, a, an ordained minister in the Anglican Communion. So Many, for many pastors, that is, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a mark of um, an approval or a good mark that your son followed your footsteps. Everybody wants their children to follow their footsteps. So how did you raise your children? What was the guiding principle to ensure that you would raise them to be godly and then to even follow in the ministry? The, the first guiding principle was me. Um, I disappeared into thin air um, about age 18, uh, 17 there. Okay. So my father didn't know who I was, my mother didn't know where I was. Nobody knew where I was, except my older brother who was a pilot with uh, KLM, Lagos. But even he, I eluded him because Nigeria was so good at that time. I had a lot of money, so I vanished. Then I, Jesus met me. And when he did, it was a remarkable experience in Ojo. Uh, I will never forget. Um, some wonderful evangelist, um, an Anglican evangelist, sharing tracts and talking to people. And I blew my cigarettes over his face. Long and short, in less than 10 minutes, I was weeping and crying. And that was the last time I smoked or even drank. So when I give my life to Jesus, I realize that a wayward child is not what I want. Hmm. I don't need a wayward child like me. So I, I prayed, I cried, I cried every day. I said, Lord, even if I will have a child, please don't let, because now I have a call of God on my life. I don't know how to handle 
an unbeliever child or a wayward child. I just don't know. Please help me. And God was so gracious to me because I now listened. I became a roving evangelist in Lagos. And then I listened to advice and I went to seminary. And it was a good seminary because I started from diploma. I did the diploma, high diploma, and then bachelor's in divinity. So it took me a long while to study. I became very interested in pastoral, clinical Christian psychology and counseling. That was the area, because I, I really don't want to have an unbeliever children. So I met my wife, present wife. She also came to study. And I told her my whole life story, which she didn't believe, because it's too, it's too good to believe that somebody in a wayward part of life can so come to be a Christian like I have become, unwilling to go to the rural ministry, uh, being a Lagosian, you know. So, but that is my call. That's my life. That's all I want to be. So she didn't believe it until she met with some of my classmates from military school and who tell us some of the story. She said, were you really that bad? And of course my mother. Then we got married. And I begged her to join me in prayers that we should ask God to show us mercy and give us grace to raise children. But in my studies also, I found out that the only way to raise children, no other way, is to be truthful with your children. Mm. In any way. Can you take that again, in, please? The only way to raise children is to be truthful with your children in every way. Let them see your love for God as being genuine and that you are not a hypocrite and that you are not thinking differently and doing something differently outside. Let them see you preach. Let them see you live it. And let them see you with your wife. Let your wife also be herself with her husband. Let them see you help your wife. Let them see you let them see you in every way. They follow me to the shops. They follow me to the club. They follow me to the swimming pool. They follow me to Pepper Soup House. They follow me to the church. They follow me everywhere. And, 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 and they didn't see me with rules. The rules for all of us was the Bible. So I did not invent rules. We all obeyed the same rules on the same basis. We all did that. It was easy when they were age one to five. But when they get to 12 to 16, they were criticizing me like crazy. Uh, sermon was too long. Uh, in your sermon, you said this. What do you really mean? And I have to be patient to answer their questions. When they became six, it got worse. Because now the oldest was by now 18. And the youngest was about uh, six. So they... The children, as typical children are, would usually have their meetings, and the only enemy they had was daddy. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason is, the reason is, from age zero to 12, daddy was the lover boy. I was never mm. around. So when I came, I brought, brought gifts, I was this, this, but from 12 to 18, even if I was not in, I had the final say. And I know it all because I have to be a father, I have to be a priest, and I have to correct them and guide them. I have to be there for them all. They are now thinking they are adults. They are not full adults. They can make decisions, and their decisions are usually wrong. And so I stand yeah. my ground. And, you know, that battle between age 12 to 18, hmm. 
and I stood my grounds. And every time I stand my grounds, I stand it on scripture. In God's grace, I had a similar upbringing so that when I was now 17 and I bolted from home, I was tired of my father, tired of my mother, tired of prime meeting, tired of all of that. But when I found that they were right, I stuck to my guns. But let me tell you the best part of it. I found my wife also an extreme gifted evangelist to children. She's just, because all my six children were schooled at home. All of them, they don't have any primary certificate other than her signatures on a piece of paper. Wow. How she does it, I don't know. And so the children got to know Jesus pretty early and make youth commitments on their own and then made the final commitments when they leave home. So they leave home, 17, and then they encounter the world in the university and they now make the final commitment on their own. So Jesus belongs to them on their own, not because we did, but the foundations were laid. And Gloria starts their day for them by six o'clock with a prayer meeting which is usually a simple worship of 30 minutes. And we close the day at eight o'clock with another prayer meeting, which is a bit longer because we tell stories, we read books. We... So that is how the Lord has helped us so far. Now they're all grown and they come home. They know the routine. Nobody leaves the house after eight o'clock. Nobody does. And nobody comes back home after eight o'clock later than eight. They know that. And everybody has to tell daddy or mommy where I am, where I'm going. Even if they are overseas as they are, many of them. Say, dad, I had a good time and I went to this. It's not a hard and fast rule. It's just that when you create a relationship with your children and they trust you and they go into the world and finally see that you are right, they will always come back. Sure, sure. This is not a foolproof text of how to raise children. <laughs> but you ask me myself and that's what I've done. Yes, you know, every, every family is unique. And then um, I've heard a testimony you shared, but I would like you to reshare it, you know, for the purpose of, you know, this uh, audience, you know, what would your response be if any of your children decides that um, I don't want to follow Christ again, you know, I don't want to be a Christian, what would your response be? I've had that with two children mainly, no, three mainly. Out of oh, the wow. three, we are blunt to tell me they're fed up. Okay. The response is, and usually it's between 18, 17, 18. They are now heading in university. They've seen some things, and um, yeah, especially the scientists, the ones that are doctors, they are the ones who encounter this. Um, so I said to my daughter first, I said, Well, young lady, I've done my bit, you are 18. If you choose to be a Buddhist, that's your choice. I will never hate you mm. because you're my. You're my daughter. I love you. I will love you till death. I will love you Buddhist till you die. But just know one thing. When you die, I'm so certain. I will be with Jesus. But where you will be, I don't know. It will hmm. pain me. Hmm. The Bible also plays hell for those who do not believe. I hope you don't end there. But I love you. Wow. It will stop me paying your school fees. It will not stop me paying your university fees. It won't stop anything. I will look after you because you're a human being from my own body. You're my blood. Yeah. The decision is yours. But just know this. For 18 years, I have told you who Jesus is, what he's done in my life, who God is, and who God is to me and to this family. 
Mm. And we parted ways. Well, the truth is, down the road before the year ended, she called and she went to a conference overseas. And she was so excited, didn't even want to talk to me. She talked to her mother. She'd made a commitment to Christ and was even speaking in tongues. And I told wow. her, that's on Anglican. The Anglicans don't speak in tongues. She said, shut up, daddy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's really amazing because we, we, we have a, some experiences or some cases where a pastor's child, a, a girl, gets pregnant out of wedlock, but the boy out somebody or joins a cult, and then the parents go all guns blazing, disowning, and all that. And so it's um, the ripple that you're just talking about, love, is a very, very strong weapon. And um, thank you for sharing that with us. And I thank God for how he has helped, helped you with your children. By God's grace, we'll have them here to share some, <laughs> some other time. And so, um, if, would you like to share what what would your last words be for any preacher's kids kid who's listening, who is in that place where they're trying to decide: is this for me? Is this not for me? Is this my father's faith? Am, am I supposed to go this way? What would you say to that person? The first thing I would say to preachers themselves, uh, father and mother, is: don't let your children even know that you're praying for them. Mm. you must be in your closet weeping and crying and begging God mm. when they are fast asleep you go to their rooms lay hands on them and pray for them pray for their socks pray for their shirts pray. while they are mm. growing this is not something you do this is something should, that should be a routine you while they are doing praying and let them never even know that you are praying for them although occasionally you can ask them do you want me to pray for you because the rebellion in a child can only be broken by Jesus himself, not by any father or mother. Mm. Believe me, Ruth, I was there. Mm. My mother spoiled my good name because she would take my name to prayer meetings, secret prayer meetings, <laughs> mother's guilt meetings, women's guilt prayer meetings, all over the town. So when I got converted, that was when I now got to know people I didn't know who were praying for. Hmm. When I a bishop, some of these older women kept saying, hmm, Benji, hey, we prayed for you. I didn't know. My mother, she, anywhere she goes, how only trouble was Benji. So she would pray secretly with her prayer partners in church and everywhere else. So hmm. and we'll, we'll feel very repulsive when they know you want to direct them to ministry or you want to this to the other. They, they, they rebel against it. We, we, none of my children have I ever asked to do any course of their life. They come by themselves to tell me. And I too told me by herself. I wanted her to read English because she writes well. She says she's doing medicine. I said, look, you're not going to make it. Please do English. I mean, this is she didn't listen. She ended up a physician. Rinji, I just didn't even know what he would be like. He's the kind of person whom God has just given. He's a talent. You see him read uh, um, uh, 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 this thing. When you buy a machine, they give you the paper. How, how you fix it? If you see him read it, then nobody can fix it. He just mm -hmm. knows things. Really. The day he came home and said the Lord was calling him, I was I couldn't believe that God would use such people. But he's the missionary now. Wow. The third 
thing. And the fourth, the same thing as an engineer. The fourth, she's a doctor. The fifth, she's a lawyer. And the sixth, the last one, is now in veterinary medicine. All of them, they all came back differently, say, this is what God is calling me to do. We never push them. And it's not right to push. You can guide them. You can look at what they do. They're gifted with technology. They are the, the one who's the, the fourth who's a physician also, he is gifted with computer. And I wanted him desperately to do computer. He desperately is going for medicine. He's finishing the next June. So wow. <laughs> like kids are, they just, they just frustrate you as a parent. You can see this boy can do this thing and he wants to go and do the other. So just leave them alone. God is in charge. We wow. cannot be God blessed by children. And believe me, each one of them has served in a missionary context. I don't know how many of them will end up serving the Lord in a missionary context, but each one of them, all six of them, they've gone on missions differently, Ghana, Uganda, on their own. They find the thing and I fund it and they go. Wow. This is amazing. Thank you so much for sharing this bit with us. I am very sure a lot of um, families will love, will, would be blessed by what you have shared. It's, um, it's something that everyone should really inculcate. So we don't believe in the one person, one case fits all, and then one person knows what to do and all that. So if anyone wants to reach you, how can they reach you? Want to get in touch with you, connect with you, ask you a few questions, how can they reach you? Well, I'm on WhatsApp. I'm on Facebook. You know, we, okay. we always touch people. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> so, I, everyone, look for him, ben, Benjamin Kwashi. I'll be keep putting the link under the post where this video is playing. So, please do connect with him. And I love that your cowboy, that picture where you're dressed like a Texas person. <laughs> it's oh, really? So, I am. Oh, by the way, I am. Really? I'm a oh, yeah, let me show you. Okay. Let me show you. Oh, wow. An honorary member. Texas Senate. Oh, wow. Amazing. Okay. So the George Bush was the first person who made me a citizen of Texas in okay. 1996. Okay. Then another senator also gave me an honorary citizenship of um, the Western Texas. Great. Amazing. So please, this is our honorary Texan citizen. <laughs> Maybe he will carry us along. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sam, for, for being here. We absolutely had a lot of, um, we're blessed. We had a lot of fun having this conversation. We hope that you will be available to do this in another time, at another time. Thank you for listening to I'm a PK, so what? With Ruth Zubairo. We are royal. We are ready. We are ready. I'm a PK, so what? I'm a PK, so what? I'm a PK, I'm a PK.